Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 4. I mentioned in the first episode that the book of Job is structured around a sort of narrative envelope. There is story at the beginning and story at the end. And in between those two brackets, there is a long back and forth dialogue about the nature of suffering and the source of true wisdom. Here in chapter four, we begin the first cycle of speeches and responses. Chapter three gave us Job's complaint, but he wasn't really speaking to his friends. He was sort of just moaning into the air. So whether you consider that part of the first cycle of speeches or not is really up to you. Most scholars identify the first round of speeches as beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and concluding in chapter 14, verse 22. In this first speech, Eliphaz responds to Job's situation and his complaint in chapter 3. He speaks first, presumably because he was the oldest and perhaps because he had a reputation for superlative wisdom. The city of Teman was known in the ancient world as a center of wisdom, much like Athens was known as a center of wisdom in the time of the New Testament. Regardless of the reason, Eliphaz speaks first, and he basically sounds like he is verbalizing the book of Proverbs. Some of the stuff he says sounds word for word like things you will read in Proverbs. And yet he is wrong. He is right and he is wrong. And again, that's what makes the book of Job Such a difficult read. Let me remind you again of Calvin's key for understanding this book of wisdom. Calvin says, We have also to note that in the whole dispute, Job maintains a good case, and his adversary maintains a poor one. Now there is more, that Job maintaining a good case pleads it poorly, and the others bringing a poor case plead it well. When we shall have understood this, it will be to us, as it were, a key to open to us the whole book, closed quote. Now, Harold Decker goes on to explain what Calvin means by saying that the friends make a poor case well. He says, the poor case of his friends is that affliction is divine punishment, meted out according to the measure of men's sins. They plead it well by making statements about God and man which are altogether true and valid and which must be accepted as being in themselves the pure teaching of the Holy Spirit. Closed quote. All right, let me make sure you got that. Calvin is saying that the friends are wrong and right at the same time. They are right in arguing that suffering is related to sin. They are right in arguing that God is just and the universe is moral. They are right in arguing, in essence, that people reap what they sow and that the wicked are punished and the righteous are rewarded. All of that is true, but it isn't quite true enough. It lacks a sense of the world's present fallenness, and it lacks an awareness of the peculiarities of Job's actual situation and the mysterious workings of divine providence. So it's 
true and yet not true and not helpful in this particular case. Again, this feature of the book advances one of the main concerns of the book, which is to get us thinking about the source of true knowledge and understanding. What we might call proverbial wisdom is good and helpful and can be received as a gift from God. And yet, we must also recognize that it has significant limitations in this broken and fallen world. It isn't always true that the wicked fall into pits that they have dug. It isn't always true that we raise up children in the ways that they should go and they don't depart from those ways all the days of their lives. Those things are generally true, often true, but not always true because this world is a mess, because every principle of justice is presently opposed because evil is on the loose and therefore wisdom can only take you so far. Ultimately, wisdom must bow before the gospel because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of this world. That is a theme we will develop along the way as we journey together through this remarkable book. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Eliphaz begins his speech carefully and wisely. He says that he would like to test, as it were, Job's complaint about his situation. He'd rather not and yet the way Job has handled his experience challenges Eliphaz's understanding of God and the workings of the world. And so, reluctantly, he would like to raise a few issues. He reminds Job that as a wise man himself, Job has been a comfort and a help to other people in the past. Now, Eliphaz suggests that he needs to take the advice that he has previously given to others. Now, we'll get to that advice in just a second, but let's pause and notice what this famous wise man has to say about the purpose of wisdom. Again, one of the major themes in the book is the source of true wisdom and secondarily, the function of true wisdom. And as noted above, just because Eliphaz is wrong in applying his take on things to Job's actual condition doesn't mean that the arguments he marshals along the way are wrong in and of themselves. Decker said above that many of the things he and the other friends say are altogether true and valid and must be accepted as being in themselves the pure teaching of the Holy Spirit. Closed quote. So we want to notice how this wise man understands the role of wisdom and the role of wise people on the earth. Tremper Longman III remarks usefully here, The wise are those who know how to navigate life. They avoid pitfalls and maximize success. If an obstacle comes their way, they know the quickest way out of the mess. Thus, they are in a position to give advice to others who are not as intelligent in life skills as they are. They can help those 
who falter, closed quote. I think that's an extraordinarily useful paragraph. Wisdom is like a set of bumper rails that keeps us out of the gutter of life as we make our way down the alley to borrow a bowling analogy. The Holy Spirit in the saved person draws us down the very center, but the bumper rails remain very helpful. They remind us of the line between helpful and unhelpful, life-giving and life-taking. They push us back towards the Spirit when we've been deceived and drawn by the impulses of the flesh or by the whispers of our adversary. Now, of course, wisdom can't lift us out of the ditch, nor can it make us love the center. Again, that is where wisdom ends and the gospel begins. But for now, Eliphaz has reminded us of the helpfulness and blessing of wisdom, and more particularly, of the wise person. A wise person is a great gift. Much of what we today call pastoral care or biblical soul care or Christian counseling is just this, the gift of wisdom applied in the context of the local church. Let me swap out some terms here so you can see that better. To use Longman's paragraph as our starting point, we might say the biblical counselor is someone who knows how to navigate life. He or she knows how to avoid pitfalls and maximize Success, when trouble comes, they know the fastest way out of the mess. Thus, they are in a position to give advice to others who are not as intelligent in life skills as they are. A biblical counselor can help those who falter. Amen. That, that's a gift in the church. And if your biblical counselor knows the gospel, then that's a ministry in your church, or perhaps it ought to be. Verse 7 now brings us into the very heart of Eliphaz's worldview. He says, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Eliphaz here sounds exactly like the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 22 verse 8 says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. That's exactly the same principle, and it is generally true. But it isn't always true in this fallen world, and it isn't actually true in the case of Brother Job. Here we are starting to see the limits of proverbial wisdom. Now, as mentioned, the book of Ecclesiastes also explores these limitations. The wise man of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 7, verse 15, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Are you hearing that? It sounds almost like Ecclesiastes is specifically rebutting this speech of Eliphaz. Eliphaz says that he has never seen an exception to the general rule. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, then you haven't seen very much. In my long life, I have seen righteous people dying young and wicked people profiting from wickedness. Proverbial wisdom doesn't always work in a broken and fallen world. Eliphaz changes tack a little bit in verse 12. He says, now, 
A word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. So in, in verses 12 to 21 here, Eliphaz begins to describe a dream that he had, which he believes sheds some light upon the present situation. Beware of this, friends. Bad theology will often be supplemented by charismatic appeal. He goes on to describe the eerie encounter in verses 13 and following. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake, a spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with air. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they're beaten to pieces, they perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die? And that without wisdom. So the spirit in the dream tells Eliphaz that human beings are lowly creatures who could never hope to have a confident standing before a holy and majestic God. They're not even angels, and God doesn't even really trust them. No human being could ever be sure that they have not in some way offended God. Therefore, Eliphaz believes that Job has taken the wrong approach in managing his suffering. He doesn't believe that it correlates logically or fairly to any particular sin or failing in him. But who is Job to make that kind of a determination? The fact that Job doesn't see a connection between his suffering and his sin is not in itself compelling. What human being could ever understand such connections? Who can weigh their own sin? Who can judge God's response? Therefore, Eliphaz contends. The simplest answer is still the most likely. Job is a terrible sinner, and this suffering is God's appropriate response. Now, Job, he says, take your medicine and respond wisely. The fastest way out of the ditch is to humble yourself before God and admit his correct estimation of your failings. Now, in most circumstances, that would be really good advice. In general, repenting of your sin is, in fact, the quickest way out of the ditch. It is generally true that humbly responding to the discipline of God is the beginning of wisdom. But not in this case. There is more going on here than Job or his friends can see. Now, accidentally, perhaps, Eliphaz has raised a very important question. We see it in verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? The implied answer in that question, of course, is no. And that reminds us of the limitations of human wisdom. Wisdom is about managing a broken world, but the gospel is about restoring a broken world. 
The spirit in Eliphaz's dream seems to imply that human beings will always be lowly and broken creatures far below the angels, and that the best thing they can do is simply respond quickly to chastisement and correction. That's what Eliphaz says he would do. In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. If it were me, he says, I would just get down on my face quickly and agree with God's judgments, and then I'm sure everything would go back to the way it used to be. If only it were that simple. The world is a little too broken for that kind of wisdom. And there is far more going on here than Eliphaz can see. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the Into the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.